Section 1 of Gobzek. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Gobzek by Honoré Balzac. Translated by Ellen Marriage. Section 1. Dedication. Monsieur le Baron Barchou de Penohen. Among all the pupils of the Oration School at Verdome, we are, I think, the only two who have afterwards met in mid-career of a life of letters. We who were once cultivating philosophy, when by rights we should have been minding our deviries. When we met, you were engaged upon your noble works on German philosophy, and I upon this study so neither of us has missed his vocation and you when you see your name here will feel no doubt as much pleasure as he who inscribes his work to you your old schoolfellow eighteen forty de balzac gobzek it was one o'clock in the morning during the winter of eighteen twenty nine to thirty but in the vicomtesse de grandieu's salon two persons stayed on who did not belong to her family circle a young and good-looking man heard the clock strike and took his leave when the courtyard echoed with the sound of a departing carriage the vicomtesse looked up saw that no one was present save her brother and a friend of the family finishing their game of piquet and went across to her daughter the girl standing by the chimney-piece apparently examining a transparent fire-screen, was listening to the sounds from the courtyard in a way that justified certain maternal fears. Camille, said the Vicomtesse, if you continue to behave to young Comte de Restaud as you have done this evening, you will oblige me to see no more of him here. Listen, child, and if you have any confidence in my love, let me guide you in life at seventeen one cannot judge of past or future nor of certain social considerations i have only one thing to say to you monsieur de restaud has a mother a mother who would waste millions of francs a woman of no birth a mademoiselle goriot people talked a good deal about her at one time she behaved so badly to her own father that she certainly does not deserve to have so good a son the young count adores her and maintains her in her position with dutifulness worthy of all praise and he is extremely good to his brother and sister but however admirable his behaviour may be the vicomtesse added with a shrewd expression so long as his mother lives any family would take alarm at the idea of entrusting a daughter's fortune and future to young Ristow. i overheard a word now and again in your talk with mademoiselle de grandieu cried the friend of the family and it made me anxious to put in a word of my own i have one monsieur le comte he added turning to his opponent i shall throw you over and go to your niece's assistance see what it is to have an attorney's ears exclaimed the vicomtesse my dear deville 
how could you know what i was saying to camille in a whisper i knew it from your looks answered derville seating himself in a low chair by the fire camille's uncle went to her side and madame de grandlieu took up her position on a hearthstool between her daughter and deville the time has come for telling a story which should modify your judgment as to ernest de restaud's prospects a story cried camille do begin at once monsieur the glance that deville gave the vicomtesse told her that this tale was meant for her the vicomtesse de grandlieu be it said was one of the greatest ladies in the faubourg saint germain by reason of her fortune and her ancient name and though it may seem improbable that a paris attorney should speak so familiarly to her or be so much at home in her house the fact is nevertheless easily explained when madame de grandlieu returned to france with the royal family she came to paris and at first lived entirely on the pension allowed her out of the civil list by louis the eighteenth an intolerable position the hotel de grandlieu had been sold by the republic it came to deville's knowledge that there were flaws in the title and he thought it ought to return to the vicomtesse he instituted proceedings of nullity of contract and gained the day encouraged by this success he used legal quibbles to such purpose as he compelled some institution or other to disgorge the forest of licensi then he won certain lawsuits against the canal de l'orient and recovered a tolerably large amount of property with which the emperor had endowed various public institutions so it fell out thanks to the young attorney's skilful management madame de grandieu's income reached the sum of some sixty thousand francs to say nothing of the vast sums returned to her by the law of indemnity and Druvia, a man of high character well-informed modest and pleasant in company became the house-friend of the family by this conduct of madame de grandlieu's affairs he had fairly earned the esteem of the faubourg saint germain and numbered the best families among his clients but he did not take advantage of his popularity as an ambitious man might have done the vicomtesse would have had him sell his practice and enter the magistracy in which career advancement would have been swift and certain with such influence at his disposal but he persistently refused all offers he only went into society to keep up his connections but he occasionally spent an evening at the hotel de grandlieu it was a very lucky thing for him that his talents had been brought into the light by his devotion to madame de grandlieu for his practice otherwise might have gone to pieces derville had not an attorney's soul since ernest de restaud had appeared at the hotel de grandlieu and he had noticed that camille felt attracted to the young man derville had been as assiduous in his visits as any dandy of the chaussee d'antin newly admitted to the noble faubourg at a ball only a few days before when he happened to stand near camille and said indicating the count 
it is a pity that yonder youngster has not two or three million francs is it not is it a pity i do not think so the girl answered monsieur de Rostaud has plenty of ability he is well educated and the minister his chief thinks well of him he will be a remarkable man i have no doubt yonder youngster will have as much money as he wishes when he comes into power yes but suppose that he were rich already rich already repeated camille flushing red why all the girls in the room would be quarrelling for him she said glancing at the quadrilles and then retorted the attorney mademoiselle de grandlieu might not be the one towards whom his eyes are always turned that is what that red colour means you like him do you not come speak out camille suddenly rose to go she loves him de ville thought since that evening camille had been unwontedly attentive to the attorney who approved of her liking for ernest de restaud hitherto although she knew well that her family lay under great obligations to deville she had felt respect rather than real friendship for him the relation was more a matter of politeness than of warmth of feeling and by her manner and by the tones of her voice she had always made him sensible of the distance which socially lay between them gratitude is a charge upon the inheritance which the second generation is apt to repudiate this adventure de ville began after a pause brings the one romantic event in my life to my mind you are laughing already he went on it seems so ridiculous doesn't it that an attorney should speak of a romance in his life but once i was five-and-twenty like everybody else and even then i had some queer things i ought to begin at the beginning by telling you about someone whom it is impossible that you should have known the man in question was a usurer can you grasp a clear notion of that sallow wan face of his i wish the academie would give me leave to dub such faces a lunar type it was like silver gilt with the gilt rubbed off his hair was iron-grey sleek and carefully combed his features might have been cast in bronze talleyrand himself was no more impassive than this moneylender a pair of little eyes yellow as ferrets and with scarce an eyelash to them peered out from under the sheltering peak of a shabby old cap as if they feared the light he had the thin lips that you see in rembrandt's or metzu's portraits of alchemists and shrunken old men and a nose so sharp at the tip that it put you in mind of a gimlet his voice was so low he always spoke suavely he never flew into a passion his age was a problem it was hard to say whether he had grown old before his time or whether by economy of youth he had saved enough to last him his life his room and everything in it from the green baize of the bureau to the strip of carpet by the bed was as clean and threadbare as the chilly sanctuary of some elderly spinster who spends her days in rubbing her furniture in winter time the live brands of the fire smouldered all day in a bank of ashes there was never any flame in his grate he went through his day 
from his uprising to his evening coughing fit with the regularity of a pendulum and in some sort was a clockwork man wound up by a night's slumber touch a woodlouse on an excursion across your sheet of paper and the creature shams death and in something the same way my acquaintance would stop short in the middle of a sentence while a cart went by to save the strain of his voice following the example of fontenelle he was thrifty of pulse strokes and concentrated all human sensibility in the innermost sanctuary of self his life flowed soundless at the sands of an hourglass his victims sometimes flew into a rage and made a great deal of noise followed by a great silence so is it in a kitchen after a fowl's neck has been wrung toward evening this bill of exchange incarnate would assume ordinary human shape and his metals were metamorphosed into a human heart when he was satisfied with his day's business he would rub his hands his inward glee would escape like smoke through every rift and wrinkle of his face in no other way is it possible to give an idea of the mute play of muscle which expressed sensations similar to the soundless laughter of leather stocking indeed even in transports of joy his conversation was confined to monosyllables he wore the same non-committal countenance this was the neighbor chance found for me in the house in the rue de grey where i used to live when as yet i was only a second clerk finishing my third year's studies the house is damp and dark and boasts no courtyard all the windows look onto the street the whole dwelling its claustral fashion is divided into rooms or cells of equal size all opening upon a long corridor dimly lit with borrowed lights the place must have been part of an old convent once so gloomy was it that the gaiety of eldest sons forsook them on the stairs before they reached my neighbor's door he and his house were much alike even so does the oyster resemble his native rock i was the one creature with whom he had any communication socially speaking he would come in to ask for a light to borrow a book or a newspaper or of an evening he would allow me to go into his cell and when he was in the humour we would chat together these marks of confidence were the results of four years of neighbourhood and my own sober conduct from sheer lack of pence i was bound to live pretty much as he did had he any relations or friends was he rich or poor nobody could give an answer to these questions i myself never saw money in his room doubtless his capital was safely stowed in the strong rooms of the bank he used to collect his bills himself as they fell due running all over paris on a pair of shanks as skinny as a stag's on occasion he would be a martyr to prudence one day when he happened to have gold in his pockets a double napoleon worked its way somehow or other out of his fob and fell and another lodger following him up the stairs picked up the coin and returned it to its owner 
that isn't mine said he with a start of surprise mine indeed if i were rich should i live as i do he made his cup of coffee himself every morning on the cast-iron chafing-dish which stood all day in the black angle of the grate his dinner came in from a cook-shop and our old porter's wife went up at the prescribed hour to set his room in order finally a whimsical chance in which stern would have seen predestination had named the man gobzek when i did business for him later i came to know that he was about seventy-six years old at the time when we became acquainted he was born about seventeen forty in some outlying suburb of antwerp of a dutch father and a jewish mother and his name was jean esther van gobzek you remember how all paris took an interest in that murder case a woman named la belle hollandaise i happened to mention it to my old neighbor and he answered without the slightest symptom of interest or surprise she is my grand-niece that was the only remark drawn from him by the death of his sole surviving next of kin his sister's granddaughter from the reports of the case i found that la belle hollandaise was in fact named sarah von gobzek when i asked by what curious chance his grandniece came to bear his surname he smiled the women never marry in our family singular creature he had never cared to find out a single relative among four generations counted on the female side the thought of his heirs was abhorrent to him and the idea that his wealth could pass into other hands after his death simply inconceivable he was a child ten years old when his mother shipped him off as a cabin boy on a voyage to the dutch straits settlements and there he knocked about for twenty years the inscrutable lines on that sallow forehead kept the secret of horrible adventures sudden panic unhoped-for luck romantic cross events joys that knew no limit hunger endured and love trampled underfoot fortunes risked lost and recovered life endangered time and time again and saved it may be by one of the rapid ruthless decisions absolved by the necessity he had known admiral simuse monsieur de lally monsieur de carangouet monsieur d'estaing le bailli de souffrain monsieur de portendure lord cornwallis lord hastings tippo sahib's father tippo sahib himself the bully who served mahajidi sindaya king of delhi and did so much to found the power of the mahatras had had dealings with gobzek long residence at st thomas brought him in contact with victor hughes and other notorious pirates in his quest of fortune he had left no stone unturned witness an attempt to discover the treasure of that tribe of savages so famous in buenos aires and its neighborhood he had a personal knowledge of the events of the american war of independence but if he spoke of the indies or of america as he did very rarely with me and never with anyone else he seemed to regard it as an indiscretion 
and to repent of it afterwards if humanity and sociability are in some sort of a religion gobseck might be ranked as an infidel but though i set myself to study him i must confess to my shame that his real nature was impenetrable up to the very last i even felt doubts at times as to his sex if all usurers are like this one i maintain that they belong to the neuter gender did he adhere to his mother's religion did he look on gentiles as his legitimate prey had he turned roman catholic lutheran mohammedan bramian or what not i never knew anything whatsoever about his religious opinions and so far as i could see he was indifferent rather than incredulous one evening i went in to see this man who had turned himself to gold the usurer whom his victims his clients as he styled them were wont to call daddy gobseck perhaps ironically perhaps by way of antiphrasis he was sitting in his armchair motionless as a statue staring fixedly at the mantel-shelf where he seemed to read the figures of his statements a lamp with a pedestal that had once been green was burning in the room but so far from taking colour from its smoky light his face seemed to stand out positively paler against the background he pointed to a chair set for me but not a word did he say what thoughts can this being have in his mind said i to myself does he know that a god exists does he know there are such things as feeling woman happiness i pitied him as i might have pitied a diseased creature but at the same time i knew quite well that while he had millions of francs at his command he possessed the world no less in idea that world which he had explored ransacked weighed appraised and exploited good day daddy gobseck i began he turned his face towards me with a slight contraction of his bushy black eyebrows this characteristic shade of expression in him meant as much as the most jubilant smile on a southern face you look just as gloomy as you did that day when the news came of the failure of that bookseller whose sharpness you admired so much though you were one of his victims one of his victims he repeated with a look of astonishment yes did you not refuse to accept composition at the meeting of creditors until he undertook privately to pay you your debt in full and did he not give you bills accepted by the insolvent firm and then when he set up in business again did he not pay you the dividend upon those bills of yours signed as they were by the bankrupt firm he was a sharp one but i had it out of him then you have some bills to protest to-day is the thirtieth i believe it was the first time i had spoken to him of money he looked ironically up at me then in those bland accents not unlike the husky tones which the tyro draws from a flute he answered i am amusing myself so you amuse yourself now and again do you imagine that the only poets in the world are those who print their verses he asked with a pitying look and shrug of the shoulders poetry in that head thought i for as yet i knew nothing of his life 
what life could be as glorious as mine he continued and his eyes lighted up you are young your mental visions are coloured by youthful blood you see women's faces in the fire while i see nothing but coals in mine you have all sorts of belief while i have no beliefs at all keep your illusions if you can now i will show you life with the discount taken off go wherever you like or stay at home by the fireside with your wife there always comes a time when you settle down in a certain groove the groove is your preference and then happiness consists in the exercise of your faculties by applying them to realities anything more in the way of precept is false my principles have been various among various men i had to change them with every change of latitude things that we admire in europe are punishable in asia and a vice in paris becomes a necessity when you have passed the azores there are no such things as hard and fast rules there are only conventions adapted to the climate fling a man headlong into one social melting-pot after another and convictions and forms and moral systems become so many meaningless words to him the one thing that always remains the one sure instinct that nature has implanted in us is the instinct of self-interest if you had lived as long as i have you would know that there is but one concrete reality invariable enough to be worth caring about and that is gold gold represents every form of human power i have travelled i found out that there were either hills or plains everywhere the plains are monotonous the hills a weariness consequently place must be left out of the question as to manners man is man all over the world the same battle between the poor and the rich is going on everywhere it is inevitable everywhere consequently it is better to exploit than to be exploited everywhere you find the man of thews and sinews who toils and the lymphatic man who torments himself and pleasures are everywhere the same for when all sensations are exhausted all that survives is vanity vanity is the abiding substance of us the i in us vanity is only to be satisfied by gold in floods our dreams need time and physical means and painstaking thought before they can be realized well gold contains all things in embryo gold realizes all things for us none but fools and invalids can find pleasure in shuffling cards all evening long to find out whether they shall win a few pence at the end none but driveling idiots could spend time in inquiring into all that is happening around them whether madame such and one slept single on her couch or in company whether she had more blood than lymph more temperament than virtue none but the dupes who fondly imagine that they are useful to their like can interest themselves in laying down rules for political guidance amid events which neither they nor any one else foresees nor ever will foresee none but simpletons can delight in talking about stage players and repeating their sayings 
making the daily promenade of a caged animal over a rather larger area dressing for others eating for others priding themselves on a horse or a carriage such as no neighbor can have until three days later what is all this but parisian life summed up in a few phrases let us find a higher outlook on life than theirs happiness consists either in strong emotions which drain our vitality or in methodical occupation which makes existence like a bit of english machinery working with the regularity of clockwork a higher happiness than either consists in a curiosity styled noble a wish to learn nature's secrets or to attempt by artificial means to imitate nature to some extent what is this in two words but science and art or passion or calm ah well every human passion wrought up to its highest pitch in the struggle for existence comes to parade itself before me as i live in calm as for your scientific curiosity a kind of wrestling bout in which man is never uppermost i replace it by an insight into all the springs of action in man and woman to sum up the world is mine without effort of mine and the world has not the slightest hold on me listen to this he went on i will tell you the history of my morning and you will divine my pleasures he got up pushed the bolt of the door drew a tapestry curtain across it with a sharp grating sound of the rings on the rod then he sat down again this morning he said i had only two amounts to collect the rest of the bills that would you i gave away instead of cash to my customers yesterday so much saved you see for when i discount a bill i always deduct two francs for a hired brougham expenses of collection a pretty thing it would be would it not if my clients were to set me trudging all over paris for half a dozen francs of discount when no man is my master and i only pay seven francs in the shape of taxes the first bill for a thousand francs was presented by a young fellow a smart buck with a spangled waistcoat and an eyeglass and a tilbury and an english horse and all the rest of it the bill bore the signature of one of the prettiest women in paris married to a count a great landowner now how came that countess to put her name to a bill of exchange legally not worth the paper it was written upon but practically very good business for these women poor things are afraid of the scandal that a protested bill makes in a family and would give themselves away in payment sooner than fail i wanted to find out what that bill of exchange really represented was it stupidity imprudence love or charity the second bill bearing the signature fanny malvaux came to me from a linen draper on the highway to bankruptcy now no creature who has any credit with a bank comes to me the first step to my door means that a man is desperately hard up that the news of his failure will soon come out and most of all it means that he has been everywhere else first the stag is always at bay when i see him and a pack of creditors are hard upon his track the countess lived in the rue du helder and my 
Fanny in the Rue Montmartre. How many conjectures I made as I set out this morning. If these two women were not able to pay, they would show me more respect than they would show their own fathers. What tricks and grimaces would not the Comtesse try for a thousand francs? She would be so nice to me. She would talk to me in that ingratiating tone peculiar to endorsers of bills. She would pour out a torrent of coaxing words. Perhaps she would beg and pray. And I, here the old man turned his pale eyes upon me, and I not to be moved. Inexorable, he continued, I am there as the avenger, the apparition of remorse. So much for hypotheses. I reached the house. Madame la Comtesse is asleep, says the maid. When can I see her? At twelve o'clock. Is Madame la Comtesse ill? No, sir, but she only came home at three o'clock this morning from a ball. My name is Gobzek. Tell her that I shall call again at twelve o'clock. And I went out, leaving traces of my muddy boots on the carpet which covered the paved staircase. I like to leave mud on a rich man's carpet. It is not petty spite. I like to make them feel a touch of the claws of necessity. In the Rue Montmartre I thrust open the old gateway of a poor-looking house, and looked into a dark courtyard where the sunlight never shines. The porter's lodge was grimy. The window looked like the sleeve of some shabby wadded gown greasy dirty and full of holes mademoiselle fanny malvaux she has gone out but if you have come about a bill the money is waiting for you i will look in again said i as soon as i knew that the porter had the money for me i wanted to know what the girl was like i pictured her as pretty the rest of the morning i spent in looking at the prints in the shop windows along the boulevard then just as it struck twelve i went through the countess's antechamber madame has just this minute rung for me said the maid i don't think she can see you yet i will wait said i and i sat down in an easy chair venetian shutters were opened and presently the maid came hurrying back come in sir from the sweet tone of the girl's voice i knew that the mistress could not be ready to pay what a handsome woman it was that i saw in another moment she had flung an indian shawl hastily over her bare shoulders covering herself with it completely while it revealed the bare outlines of the form beneath she wore a loose gown trimmed with snowy ruffles which told plainly that her laundress's bills amounted to something like two thousand francs in the course of a year her dark curls escaped from beneath a bright indian handkerchief knotted carelessly about her head after the fashion of the creole women the bed lay in disorder that told of broken slumber a painter would have paid money to stay a while to see the scene that i saw under the luxurious hanging draperies the pillow crushed into the depths of an elder-down quilt its lace border standing out in contrast against the background of blue silk bore a vague impress that kindled the imagination 
a pair of satin slippers gleamed from the great bearskin rug spread by the carved mahogany lions at the bedfoot where she had flung them off in her weariness after the ball a crumpled gown hung over a chair the sleeves touching the floor stockings which a breath would have blown away were twisted about the leg of an easy chair while ribbon garters straggled over a settee a fan of price half unfolded glittered on the chimney-piece drawers stood open flowers diamonds gloves a bouquet a girdle was littered about the room was full of vague sweet perfume and beneath all the luxury and disorder beauty and incongruity i saw misery crouching in wait for her or for her adorer misery rearing its head for the countess had begun to feel the edge of those fangs her tired face was an epitome of the room strewn with relics of past festival the scattered gewgaws pitiable this morning when gathered together and coherent had turned heads the night before what efforts to drink of the tantalus cup of bliss i could read in these traces of love stricken by the thunderbolt remorse in this visible presentment of a life of luxury extravagance and riot there were faint red marks on her young face signs of the fineness of the skin but her features were coarsened as it were and the circles about her eyes were unwontedly dark nature nevertheless was so vigorous in her that these traces of past folly did not spoil her beauty her eyes glittered she looked like some herodias of da vinci's i have dealt in pictures so magnificently full of life and energy was she there was nothing starved nor stinted in feature or outline she awakened desire it seemed to me that there was some passion in her yet stronger than love i was taken with her it was a long while since my heart had throbbed so i was paid then and there for i would give a thousand francs for a sensation that should bring me back memories of youth monsieur she said finding a chair for me will you be so good as to wait until this time to-morrow madame i said folding up the bill again I cannot legally protest this bill any sooner and within myself i said pay the price of your luxury pay for your name pay for your ease pay for the monopoly which you enjoy the rich have invented judges and courts of law to secure their goods and the guillotine that candle in which so many lie in silk under silken coverlets there is remorse and grinding of teeth beneath a smile and those fantastical lions jaws are gaping to set their fangs in your heart protest the bill can you mean it she cried with her eyes upon me could you have so little consideration for me if the king himself owed money to me madame and did not pay it i should summons him even sooner than any other debtor while we were speaking somebody tapped gently at the door i cannot see anyone she cried imperiously but anastasie i particularly wish to speak to you not just now dear she answered in a milder tone but with no sign of relenting what nonsense 
"'You are talking to someone,' said the voice, and in came a man who could only be the Count. The Countess gave me a glance. I saw how it was. She was thoroughly in my power. There was a time when I was young, and might perhaps have been stupid enough not to protest the bill. At Pondicherry in 1763 I let a woman off, and nicely she paid me out afterwards. I deserved it. What call was there for me to trust her?' "'What does this gentleman want?' asked the Count. I could see that the Countess was trembling from head to foot. The white satin skin of her throat was rough, turned to goose-flesh, to use the familiar expression. As for me, I laughed to myself without moving a muscle. "'This gentleman is one of my tradesmen,' she said. The Count turned his back on me. I drew the bill half out of my pocket. After that inexorable movement, she came over to me and put a diamond into my hands. Take it, she said, and be gone. We exchanged values, and I made my bow and went. The diamond was quite worth twelve hundred francs to me. Out in the courtyard I saw a swarm of flunkies brushing out their liveries, waxing their boots, and cleaning sumptuous equipages. This is what brings these people to me, said I to myself. It is to keep up this kind of thing that they steal millions with all due formalities and betray their country. The great lord and the little man who apes the great lord bathes in mud once for all to save himself a splash or two when he goes afoot through the streets. Just then the great gates were opened to admit a cabriolet. It was the same young fellow who had brought the bill to me. Sir, I said as he alighted, here are two hundred francs, which I beg you to return to Madame la Comtesse, and have the goodness to tell her that I hold the pledge which she deposited with me this morning at her disposition for a week. He took the two hundred francs, and an ironical smile stole over his face. It was as if he had said, Aha! So she has paid it, has she? Faith, so much the better. I read the Countess's future in his face. That good-looking, fair-haired young gentleman is a heartless gambler. He will ruin himself, ruin her, ruin her husband, ruin the children, eat up their portions, and work more havoc in Parisian salons than a whole battery of howitzers in a regiment. I went back to see Mademoiselle Fanny in the Rue Montmartre, climbed a very steep narrow staircase, and reached a two-roomed dwelling on the fifth floor. Everything was as neat as a new ducat. I did not see a speck of dust on the furniture in the first room where Mademoiselle Fanny was sitting. Mademoiselle Fanny herself was a young Parisian girl, quietly dressed, with a delicate fresh face and a winning look. The arrangement of her neatly brushed chestnut hair in a double curve on her forehead lent a refined expression to blue eyes, clear as crystal. The broad daylight streaming in through the short curtains against the window-pane fell and softened light on her girlish face. A pile of shaped pieces of linen told me that she was a seamstress. She looked like a spirit of solitude. When I held out the bill, I remarked that she had not been at home when I called in the morning. But the money was left with the porter's wife, said she. 
I pretended not to understand. You go out early, mademoiselle, it seems. I very seldom leave my room, but when you work all night you are obliged to take a bath sometimes. I looked at her. A glance told me all about her life. Here was a girl condemned by misfortune to toil, a girl who came of honest farmer folk, for she had still a freckle or two that told of country birth. There was an indefinable atmosphere of goodness about her. I felt as if I were breathing sincerity and frank innocence. It was refreshing to my lungs. Poor innocent child, she had faith in something. There was a crucifix and a sprig or two of green box above her poor little painted wooden bedstead. I felt touched or somewhat inclined that way. I felt ready to offer to charge no more than twelve per cent and to give something towards establishing her in a good way of business. But maybe she has a little youngster of a cousin, I said to myself, who would raise money on her signature and sponge on the poor girl. So I went away, keeping my generous impulses well under control, for I have frequently had occasion to observe that when benevolence does no harm to him who gives it, it is the ruin of him who takes it. When you came in, I was thinking that Fanny Malveaux would make a nice little wife. I was thinking of the contrast between her pure, lonely life and the life of the Comtesse. She has sunk as low as a bill of exchange already. She will sink to the lowest depths of degradation before she has done. I scrutinized him during the deep silence that followed, but in a moment he spoke again. Well, he said, do you think that it is nothing to have this power of insight into the deepest recesses of the human heart, to embrace so many lives, to see the naked truth underlying it all? There are no two dramas alike. There are hideous sores, deadly chagrins, love scenes, misery that soon will lie under the ripples of the Seine, young men's joys that lead to the scaffold, the laughter of despair, and sumptuous banquets. Yesterday it was a tragedy. A worthy soul of a father drowned himself because he could not support his family. Tomorrow is a comedy. Some youngster will try to rehearse a scene of Monsieur Dimanche, brought up to date. You have heard the people extol the eloquence of our latter-day preachers. Now and again I have wasted my time by going to hear them. They produced a change in my opinions, but in my conduct, as somebody said, I can't recollect his name, in my conduct, never. Well, well, these good priests and your Mirabeus and Virginodes and the rest of them are mere stammering beginners compared with these orators of mine. Often it is some girl in love, some grey-headed merchant on the verge of bankruptcy, some mother with a son's wrongdoing to conceal some starving artist, some great man whose influence is on the wane, and, for lack of money, is like to lose the fruit of all his labours. The power of their pleading has made me shudder. Sublime actors such as these play for me, for an audience of one, and they cannot deceive me. I can look into their inmost thoughts and read them as God reads them. Nothing is hidden from me, nothing is refused to the holder of the purse-strings to loose and to bind. 
i am rich enough to buy the consciences of those who control the action of ministers from their office boys to their mistresses is not that power i can possess the fairest women receive their softest caresses is not that pleasure and is not your whole social economy summed up in terms of power and pleasure there are ten of us in paris silent unknown kings the arbiters of your destinies what is life but a machine set in motion by money know this for certain methods are always confounded with results you will never succeed in separating the soul from the senses spirit from matter gold is the spiritual basis of existing society the ten of us are bound by the ties of common interest we meet on certain days of the week at the cafe thames near the pont neuf and there in conclave we reveal the mysteries of finance no fortune can deceive us we are in possession of family secrets in all directions we keep a kind of black book in which we note the most important bills issued drafts on public credit or on banks or given and taken in the course of business we are the casuists of the paris boors a kind of inquisition weighing and analyzing the most insignificant actions of every man of any fortune and our forecasts are infallible one of us looks out over the judicial world one over the financial another surveys the administrative yet another the business world i myself keep an eye on eldest sons artists people in the great world and gamblers on the most sensational side of paris everyone who comes to us lets us into his neighbor's secrets thwarted passion and mortified vanity are great babblers vice and disappointment vindictiveness are the best of all detectives my colleagues like myself have enjoyed all things are sated with all things and have reached the point where power and money are loved for their own sake here he said indicating his bare chilly room here the most high-mettled gallant who chafes at a word and draws swords for a syllable elsewhere will entreat with clasped hands there is no city merchant so proud no woman so vain of her beauty no soldier of so bold a spirit but that they entreat me here one and all with tears of rage or anguish in their eyes here they kneel the famous artist and the man of letters whose name will go down to posterity here in short he lifted his hands to his forehead all the inheritances and all the concerns of all paris are weighed in the balance are you still of the opinion that there are no delights behind the blank mask which so often has amazed you by its impassiveness he asked stretching out that livid face which reeked of money i went back to my room feeling stupefied the little wizened old man had grown great he had been metamorphosed under my eyes into a strange visionary symbol he had come to be the power of gold personified i shrank shuddering from life and my kind is it really so i thought must everything be resolved into gold i remember that it was long before i slept that night i saw heaps of gold all about me 
my thoughts were full of the lovely countess i confess to my shame that the vision completely eclipsed another quiet innocent figure the figure of the woman who had entered upon a life of toil and obscurity but on the morrow through the clouds of slumber fanny's sweet face rose before me in all its beauty and i thought of nothing else will you take a glass of eau sucre asked the vicomtesse interrupting deville i should be glad of it but i can see nothing in this that can touch our concerns said madame de grandieu as she rang the bell sorandopoulos cried deville flinging out his favorite invocation mademoiselle camille will be wide awake in a moment if i say that her happiness depended not so long ago upon daddy gobseck but as the old gentleman died at the age of ninety monsieur de restaud will soon be in possession of a handsome fortune this requires some explanation as for poor fanny malvaux you know her she is my wife poor fellow he would admit that with his usual frankness with a score of people to hear him said the vicomtesse i would proclaim it to the universe said the attorney go on drink your glass my poor deville you will never be anything but the happiest and the best of men i left you in the rue du helday remarked the uncle raising his face after a gentle doze you had gone to see the countess what have you done with her a few days after my conversation with the old dutchman deville continued i sent in my thesis and became first a licentiate in law and afterwards an advocate the old miser's opinion of me went up considerably he consulted me gratuitously on all the ticklish bits of business that he undertook when he had made quite sure how he stood business which would have seemed unsafe to any ordinary practitioner this man over whom no one appeared to have the slightest influence listened to my advice with something like respect it is true that he always found that it turned out very well at length i became head clerk in the office where i worked for three years and then i left the rue de grès for rooms in my employer's house i had my board and lodging and a hundred and fifty francs per month it was a great day for me when i went to bid the usurer good-bye he showed no sign of feeling he was neither cordial nor sorry to lose me he did not ask me to come to see him and only gave me one of those glances which seemed in some sort to reveal a power of second sight by the end of a week my old neighbor came to see me with a tolerably thorny bit of business an expropriation and he continued to ask for my advice with as much freedom as if he paid for it my principal was a man of pleasure and expensive tastes before the second year eighteen eighteen to eighteen nineteen was out he had got himself into difficulties and was obliged to sell his practice a professional connection in those days did not fetch the present exorbitant prices and my principal asked a hundred and fifty thousand francs now an active man of competent knowledge and intelligence might hope to pay off the capital in ten years paying interest and living respectably in the meantime 
if he could command confidence but i as the seventh child of a small tradesman at noyon i had not a sou to my name and no personal knowledge of any capitalist but daddy gobseck an ambitious idea and an indefinable glimmer of hope put heart into me to gobseck i betook myself and slowly one evening i made my way to the rue de grey my heart thumped heavily as i knocked at his door in the gloomy house i recollected all the things that he used to tell me at a time when i myself was very far from suspecting the violence of the anguish awaiting those who crossed his threshold now it was i who was about to beg and pray like so many others well no no that i said to myself an honest man must keep his self-respect wherever he goes success is not worth cringing for let us show him a front as decided as his own teddy gobseck had taken my room since i left the house so as to have no neighbour he had made a little grated window too in his door since then and did not open until he had taken a look at me and saw who i was well he said in his thin flute notes so your principal is selling his practice how did you know that said i he has not spoken of it as yet except to me the old man's lips were drawn in puckers like a curtain to either corner of his mouth as a soundless smile bore a hard glance company nothing else would have brought you here he said dryly after a pause which i spent in confusion listen to me monsieur gobseck i began with such serenity as i could assume before the old man who gazed at me with steady eyes there was a clear light burning in them that disconcerted me he made a gesture as if to bid me go on i know that it is not easy to work on your feelings so i will not waste my eloquence on the attempt to put my position before you i am a penniless clerk with no one to look to but you and no heart in the world but yours can form a clear idea of my probable future let us leave hearts out of the question business is business and business is not carried on with sentimentality like romances now to the facts my principal's practice is worth in his hands about twenty thousand francs per annum in my hands i think it would bring in forty thousand he is willing to sell it for a hundred and fifty thousand francs and here i said striking my forehead i feel that if you would lend me the purchase money i could clear it off in ten years time come that is plain speaking said daddy gobseck and he held out his hand and grasped mine nobody since i have been in business has stated the motives of his visit more clearly guarantees asked he scanning me from head to foot none to give he added after a pause how old are you twenty-five in ten days time said i or i could not open the matter precisely well it is possible my word we must be quick about it or i shall have some one buying over my head bring your certificate of birth round to-morrow morning and we will talk i will think it over next morning at eight o'clock i stood in the old man's room he took the document put on his spectacles coughed spat wrapped himself up in his black great coat 
and read the whole certificate through from beginning to end then he turned it over and over looked at me coughed again fidgeted about in his chair and said we will try to arrange this bit of business i trembled i make fifty per cent on my capital he continued sometimes i make a hundred two hundred five hundred per cent i turned pale at the words but as we are acquaintances i shall be satisfied to make twelve and a half per cent he hesitated well yes from you i would be content to take thirteen per cent per annum will that suit you yes i answered but if it is too much stick up for yourself grotius a name he jokingly gave me when i ask you for thirteen per cent it is all in the way of business look into it see if you can pay it i don't like a man to agree too easily is it too much no said i i will make up for it by working a little harder gad your clients will pay for it said he looking at me wickedly out of the corner of his eye no by all the devils in hell cried i it shall be i who will pay i would sooner cut my hand off than flay people good-night said daddy gobzek why fees are all according to scale i added not for compromises and settlements out of court and cases where litigants come to terms said he you can send a bill for thousands of francs six thousand even at a swoop it depends on the importance of the case for conferences with so-and-so and expenses and drafts and memorials and your jargon a man must learn to look out for business of this kind i will recommend you as a most competent clever attorney i will send you such a lot of work of this sort that your colleagues will be fit to burst with envy verbrust palma and guignoy my cronies shall hand over their expropriations to you they have plenty of them the lord knows so you will have two practices the one you are buying and the other i will build up for you you ought almost to pay me fifteen per cent on my loan end of section one